This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... C.C. Beck. Who was C.C. Beck? Well, he was a man with kind eyes, cherubic cheeks, and silver hair who illustrated comic books during the middle of the 20th century. He became equally known for his skill and diligently applied craft as for his acerbic behavior and curmudgeonly temperament. He is currently most remembered for being the co-creator of Captain Marvel. However, something most aficionados don't want to admit is his legacy is riddled with racism. Dude was racist, or at the very least, willfully complicit. Act 1, Secret Origins. Bill Parker and C.C. Beck were the men who fathered the hero who would eventually be known as Captain Marvel, or Shazam, depending on when in the timeline you're hailing from. Writer Bill Parker, at the behest of his boss, executive director Ralph Day, was tasked with creating a character that had special abilities of six mythical figures. Parker took this and ran with it, which is how you get Shazam, being our hero Billy Batson's secret code word. Yeah, it's, it's basically like, you know, Hercules and uh, Atlas and Zeus and, you know, all of these different Greek mythology characters. And, you know, there's a really famous image from the first appearance where Billy Batson's like walking into the wizard Shazam's cave and there's like all of these old statues of gods and you know each one of them says their name above it and then below it spells out Shazam. It's interesting how we're always recontextualizing and remixing pop culture. Like I feel like that's thought of as a very contemporary thing where it's like the sort of millennial postmodern um approach to creating based on all these different influences. Or, you know, we all are like, yeah, you know, my thing is like, it's a mixture of like Nancy Drew and uh, fucking uh, Muppet Babies or something like that. I and, would I would read that book. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but it, but I, and I think it really is definitively thought of as this specifically millennial postmodern reverence for nostalgia. But it's always been that way. I mean, you know, the. the Star Wars and Indiana Jones, all the it's I think the reason why it's not thought of in that way is because many people just don't have those frames of references. People don't know that Star Wars is based off of, you know, old radio serials and Akira Kurosawa films and that Indiana Jones. Yeah, like people just Mm -hmm. don't know that those things exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even I mean, most superheroes are literally that Batman is just a remix of the shadow and the phantom and pulp adventurers like Doc Savage, you know. Speaking of which, uh, I watched a couple episodes of Darkwing Duck with with uh, Ephraim, 
and who? Darkwing Duck. No, no, no. Who? Oh, uh, with with um, which one was he? I think he was JJ the third. JJ the JJ the fourth. JJ the fourth. Right. Yeah. And uh, he's just blatantly a phantom parody, which I never I never thought of before. Well, he's he's the phantom crossed with the shadow, which is why he has the hat and the cape. And I never I never I never intellectualized that. Yeah, all of those like '90s. Uh, Disney cartoons are remi- it's the, exactly what we're talking about. They're all remixes. Well, yeah, like Chip and Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers is is Magnum PI and Indi- like I, I knew that one, but I just never thought about the Darkwing Duck one. Isn't there another one too that was from around that time? Tailspin, Tailspin? is like I'm sure that's something that well, were they were they just like what if Mad Max or what if what if uh, Waterworld was good? Yes, it was based on Waterworld. No, I think I think I, I don't know specifically, but I feel like Tailspin is probably inspired by something from the 1940s because it has like a 1940s aesthetic to it. And everyone wears like 40s clothes and Baloo is like a very kind of like he's kind of like a Humphrey Bogart type character. I don't know. I feel like it's something. Yeah, I'm not familiar enough with Tailspin. I, I remember I had a bunch of the toys and I loved it, but I, I never really saw the show because the show was like either it was on cable and we didn't have cable at that time or. There was something about the way that you had to watch it that I didn't have access to as a little kid, but I was obsessed with the like like head cannon that I would make for Tailspin, where you know they like, oh look, it, this is what ha- this is the story of the Jungle Book after Mowgli dies. That's what I like convinced myself it was, <laughs> and it becomes like a weird post-apocalyptic world where the animals have like gr- like become bipedal and have evolved to speak and wear human clothes. <laughs> They speak in, in in Jungle Book, yeah. But it's assumed that it's like they're communicating via animal sounds and we're just kind of hearing them in English. Uh, is it though? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have no fight dog at this fight. I'm just fucking around. The most egregious of them it was uh, Doc Savage Duck. Oh, right. I was a big Doc Savage Duck fan. Yeah, yeah. With the, uh, the, the fabulous five furry friends where it was just his normal fabulous five sidekicks but they're all they're all the actual fabulous five but they're in like furry costumes like (laughs) full-on furry convention costumes that was the weirdest one it's i'm not surprised that that one hasn't held up in our nostalgia yeah, there's, Donald, there's, Donald there's no Duck Buzzfeed and quizzes about that one. Donald Duck and a team of the actual Fabulous Five in furry costumes just going on adventures together. That sounds amazing to me. I would watch that. So cool. So cool. But yeah, uh, basically, you know, Billy Batson and, and Captain Marvel start as this kind of like remix of old mythologies all kind of rolled into one. Billy Batson, a seemingly perennially alone little kid, discovers a cave with a wizard in it who grants him special abilities. And all he needs to do is speak the wizard's name, Shazam. This transforms the boy into an adult superhero named Captain Marvel, or Captain Thunder, as he was originally named. Uh, But then they had to change it because of copyright stuff, because there already was a character named Captain Thunder. And then they called him Captain Marvel. Which is also also interesting, just as a side note here. Um, How this character could just never escape copyright infringement? Yeah, pretty much. But but the, the interesting thing is Fawcett Comics, the, the publisher that put out Captain Marvel originally, the way that they figured out, because there was kind of like a weird gold rush in the late 30s, 40s, and early 50s, trying to just like snap up as many names and copyright and trademark as many names of superheroes as possible. So... Fawcett in the early 40s started putting out basically mini comics. I've copyrighted Davy Bakey. 
David David Bakes, Darvi Varkey, Davey Waby, Dabney Dugood. The, the list goes on. The list goes on. Dame Bega, all of them, all of them. Uh, but they they realized that there was like basically that the the real estate was kind of a first come first serve thing, and they just wanted to snap up as many of these ideas as they possibly could. So what they did is they put out mini comics, which is really you know it's completely unheard of at at this point in time to basically like self-publish zines and then publicly distribute them. And that's what the company did. So they just put out a shitload of comics that are like literally a drawing of a guy and then like some text and then like a part of a story just so they could say, we own Captain Marvel, we own Captain Thunder, we own Captain This, we own Mr. That, we own, you know, like all of these names. They were just trying to get the, the real estate locked down. And then months later, or sometimes even years later, they would actually put out the real comics. I kind of love that. First of all, Dabney Duguid is a great name, and I'm going to use that for something. Second of all, there's a there's a modern day kind of equivalent to that in in um, media publishing, and I know this because I've worked at companies who have done this all kinds of times. And basically, in the in the world of owned and operated um, content websites, or just I guess I just I guess just websites in general, anywhere where you want to drive traffic and get and and drive referral traffic, utilizing organic search. Um, search traffic from Google or whatever, the most, the, 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 the website, the URLs with the highest um, uh, domain authority are, are, are websites that have four letter words. Like those are the ones that can get the most organic, highest search traffic for whatever SEO reason. And so companies will just buy up as many four letter word URLs as possible. And so a company will just have all of these different URLs that they're just holding on to in case they ever want to make them someday. So uh, a, a certain company uh, that I can't help but name because that's the point of what I'm saying is only called Guff because that was just a random four letter word URL that that was owned at the time whenever the company was being created. So they owned like Guff, Suff, Puff, Juff. Basically. Uh, duff. I mean, it, it's woof. not even it's not even like typing in random stuff and, and then like buying it up. It's more like looking at a list of available things and just being like, yeah, we'll, we'll take all these or whatever. Interesting. That's fascinating. Do they use them? Like, do they register them all as domain names and then have them point to something specifically? Like, are there like if you typed in like, let's say Guff owns 50 word, 54 letter word URLs, and one of them happens to be snuff, S-N-U-F. And if you just happen to type in snuff in Google, the first result, would it be Guff? No, I mean, well, I mean, companies do do that. Like if you, if you type in like gurgle.com or whatever, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll, t- it'll take you to Google. Like <laughs> company, companies buy similarly sounding URLs so that if you mistype, It'll I just, almost did a spit <laughs> Gurgle.com. But yeah, no, but they'll buy that. And then if, if you accidentally type that in, it'll take you to Google. And they do that on purpose. They And they buy a bunch of like similar miss, like they buy all the misspelling or like similar sounding um, name URLs so to direct anybody who accidentally types in the wrong thing or whatever. Um, but, but in terms of those ones, like, no, I don't really, typically, I don't think so. Typically those websites would just kind of, if you typed them in, they would just take you to a 404 error or they would take you to a thing being like, this website is, doesn't exist yet or whatever until they wanted to actually do something with the website. Gotcha. 
Captain Marvel became wildly popular due to his amazingly simple and effective wish-fulfillment narrative device. If you didn't notice, the character is almost one-to-one a Superman ripoff, like many characters of the day were. However, Captain Marvel quickly skyrocketed up the charts, outselling the Man of Steel because, as anyone would say, look up in the sky, it's a totally legal character that's just kind of made to rip off Superman's success, but will still end up bankrupting Fawcett. Why do, you, why do you think that it outsold Superman? It basically, it, it outsold Superman because of the, the structure of a kid becoming an adult. Like, like Superman didn't have Superboy at this point in time. Batman has Robin, so like the, the little kids see themselves as Superman, or see themselves as Robin hanging out with Batman. And especially in the 40s and 50s, in the later 40s, in the early 40s, Batman was really dark and used guns and murdered people and had purple gloves. In the later 40s, Batman... That's when I related to him most. <laughs> in the later 40s and the early 50s, specifically the Dick Sprang stuff, um, Superman be- and Superman and Batman kind of both became just like everyone's dad. So they didn't really fight villains as much. Batman still did to a certain extent, but Superman specifically didn't fight villains in the 50s. He like solved problems and helped people learn moral lessons. Like specifically the Mort Weisinger era... Um, Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen comics, they're amazing, but he, there's literally no villain in any of them. Every issue is three eight-page stories where Superman, like, teaches Jimmy a lesson, or Jimmy has to kind of, like, go out and do something, and Superman, like, shows up to help him and, like, rig things so he has a character arc. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading about a, an old Superman comic story from the 50s where there's like a, a really bad, like low income neighborhood, like a like a projects. And they want him to like help them improve the neighborhood and like get rid of the crime or whatever. And then he ends up like destroying the entire neighborhood so that the government is forced to rebuild it. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're nuts. Like my favorite Jimmy Olsen story from that time period is called Jimmy Olsen against the bearded, the, against the bearded society of Metropolis. And it's a, it's an eight page story where these people who hang out in like a, you know, like a cigar club get together and they decide that they're going to, they're going to put a chemical compound in the water supply of Metropolis. And the chemical compound will cause everyone, man, women, children to grow beards and that's all they want. They just think beards are the best and they think everyone should have a beard. And so like the first page is them succeeding at this. Where's the lie? <laughs> so they succeed and then the rest of the comic is like is like Clark Kent having his cuz he can't grow a beard. He, the, the chemical compound doesn't work on him cuz he's Superman. So he has to wear fake beards the whole time. And so the whole comic is just Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane trying to solve who is making who's putting the chemical compound in the water and Clark Kent like whip 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 trying to keep his beard on like it's a really windy day and he has to like try and keep the beard on without touching it or like it starts to rain and he has to keep the beard from getting wet and it'll fall off his face like it's ridiculous and amazing and I love it um but the reason why Captain Marvel was successful to bring it back to a point the reason why Captain Marvel is successful is because because the people who were writing it weren't off on peyote spirit quests in the desert. Well, it's funny you say that because the writing method for all of those 1940s and 50s uh, comics for Superman was the main editor of the, of the Superman department 
um, was this guy named Mort Weisinger. And Mort Weisinger um, was a complete piece of shit and a habitual liar, but that's a separate story. His process for coming up with these stories is he lived in Long Island and he would take the train into New York every day to the DC offices. And as he was coming, as he was like walking to the train, he would stop and ask little kids in their yards on the way to the train station, like, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And the little kids would just be like, I wish my head was an ant head. Or like, I wish that my fingers shot rainbows. Or whatever. And he would just write them all down. And then he would go into the office, call up all of his freelancers and assign all of the freelancers those stories. Like, you have to make a story where Superman turns into an ant. You have to make a story where... uh Lois Lane shoots rainbows out of her fingers. You have to make a story where Superman and Batman get fused and become half, you know, it's like, it's almost like, you know how Axe Cop was a thing where it was like an older, you know, sibling and his like five-year-old brother making a comic where the the five-year-old would just come up with these crazy things and the older brother would illustrate them. That's kind of like what Superman comics were in the 50s. Yeah, I tried to do that exact same thing to come up with some ideas for Deep Cuts episodes and I was immediately arrested. (laughs) Uh, the 50s, man. It was another time. It was another time. You could just stop at people's front yards and, like, talk to their children for an extended period of time and no one cared. So here in the script, we got a, we got a photo of old dirty C.C. Beck. You want to try and describe that guy for the listener? He looks like a cartoon character, jovial old man. The, the, just the, the type of man in a cartoon who would just constantly be laughing up at the top of his lungs and just serve as a, as, as like a weird comedic foil for the main character. Yeah. He's got like horned rim glasses, puffy, like cloud esque white hair, a giant white beard. And uh, he's wearing a brown suit. And he, in this photo, which is obviously at some convention from the 1970s, He's holding a lightning bolt insignia that is the Captain Marvel chest logo. Uh, and he's smiling. Uh, and he looks like a super nice dude. He looks like he looks like he has an insanely impressive train set in his basement. <laughs> yeah, he really does. That, that dude that dude collects stamps or uh, he's a leperopodist or some sort of interesting kind of weird, harmless, hobbyist. C.C. Beck, or Charles Clarence Beck, was born in Zumbrata, Minnesota on June 8, 1910. He is quoted in interviews as saying it was a place Walt Disney would have loved, which if you know anything about Walt Disney, you're already bracing for the wildly problematic shoe to drop. Let's just say that he's uh, C.C. Beck and Walt Disney and and, uh, old Austin Wiggin are partying it up in hell. (laughs) Yep. His mother was a school teacher and his father was a preacher. That's a that's a that's a ref that's a callback to a previous episode listener that Dave does not remember, but you do. You think I don't know who Austin Wiggin is? No, you don't remember whenever I when I made that joke that that Austin Wiggin and Walt Disney were were uh were oh, ha- yeah, hanging I literally out did not remember hanging that. out together in hell. I don't I don't I don't remember why we brought up why Walt Disney was brought up, but I said that. Because he was an anti-Semitic, anti-union piece of shit. Yeah, but I don't remember why, how that got worked into the conversation, but somehow it did. Who has a bad memory now, Andrew? Who has a bad memory now? <laughs> at 23 years old, Beck landed a job as a staff artist for Fawcett Comics, a third-tier publisher which ostensibly made its bread and butter 
ripping off whatever current trends were happening. In an era of literal sweatshops like the Eisner Studio churning out comics on an assembly line basis, craft was not something that many people deliberated over. Comics in the 1930s and the 1940s were disposable cultural detritus. Beck, however, showed immense talent that blossomed over his time at Fawcett. He developed a clear and concise method of storytelling, a charming sense of anatomy, and a razor-precise style that has been imitated for half a century. One of the most brilliant aspects of his cartooning is how he approaches character design. They say the eyes are the window to the soul, right? Well, look at how Beck communicates the character's central dynamic with just four lines. He always draws Billy Batson with dot eyes. He's innocent, untainted, and open to the world. The circle is the perfect representation of that. Captain Marvel, on the other hand, is usually drawn with arched lines for eyes, like he's squinting, or like his eyes are being forced closed because he's smiling so hard. Even when he's not smiling, he's still smiling. He's constantly smizing. This conveys a subliminal, being an adult is fun paradigm to the reader, which is basically what the whole book is literally about. It's a power fantasy and it's wish fulfillment, letting kids aspire to be just and honorable as an adult. And that adulthood, it isn't scary. It's positive and safe and that it's easy to do the right thing. Whenever I was a kid, I always pictured myself, whenever I became an adult, I pictured myself like this. Like a, like a, like a, like a buff, chiseled, like, dude. I don't know why. Like, <laughs> like, later on when I remember back on that, I was like, why did I think that? Why did I, th like, I, I, I know what my dad looked like. My dad was just like a, like a doughy, chubby guy. Like, why did I think I was going to be like this, like, Adonis, like, Vitruvian man? Like, it wasn't even like a thing, like, I thought I was going to be so handsome. It wasn't, it wasn't even, it wasn't a vain thing at all. It was just like, in my mind, whenever you grow up and become a man, you look like that. And it was like, it was like the Captain Marvel look. The, like, barrel chest and the, the, like, yeah, wide face. Something in my mind was like, when you transition into an adult, you just start looking like that, even though none of the adults around me did. I don't know why I thought of it like that. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, dear listener, it was true. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a realization. I'm Billy Batson, and you're Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> you just say Hillsmer and become... Now that I think about it, we've never been in the same room together. That's true. And that adulthood isn't scary. It's positive and safe, and it's easy to do the right thing, as long as you're white. Which is the underlying subtitle of everything from, from the beginning of pop culture until relatively recently. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly, Captain Marvel became the flagship character of Fawcett Comics, so much so that they built out his cast with iterative characters and companions. Otto Binder, one of the most highly regarded Captain Marvel writers, had the narrative approach of more is always better. He was the one who pushed for characters like Captain Marvel Jr., Miss Marvel, Uncle Marvel, and Talkie Tawny Tiger. I, I guess you got to switch up that format a little bit every once in a while. <laughs> Have you? Do you know who Tawny Talkie Tiger or Talkie Tawny Tiger is? I don't. He is he is a an anthropomorphic tiger that dresses like Captain Marvel. I figured he like is just he's just a. I mean, he's not, he doesn't exactly dress like Captain Marvel. He's a part of a team of guys that are like pseudo adventurers, but they all wear red costumes and they're like jumpsuits that look almost identical to uh, Captain Marvel. And they're not, they're like, they're kind of actually more like the Fabulous Five from uh, 
Doc Savage, actually, now that we're talking about it. But Talkie Tawny is he's the best. He's a fucking talking tiger. Yeah, I mean, I, I love stuff like that. I mean, aside from the racism that's coming up, I love like you like you're going back to or like you said before, the the iterative world building. I, I, I love stuff like that. I love taking a central idea and then building it out with um, a bunch of different characters that are diverse in certain ways, like a human and then like for no reason, a talking anthropomorphic tiger. I mean, you know, fucking our boy Hillsmer. Like I love stuff like that. I love the idea that like there's just like two guys and then a fucking demon puppet. I love that. Um, Wait, what? There's a demon puppet? I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of a prejudiced way of saying it, but yeah, come on, man. Extraterrestrial American. Mm hmm. Uh, but yeah, aside from the, the racism, I, I love like your racism against Hillsmer's yeah, kind. Exactly. We always, we always hate what we have become. Yes. I know what you're thinking, man. This sounds exactly like the playbook from the Superman family in the 1950s, Superboy, Supergirl, crypto, so on and so forth down the line. Well, that's because most of those characters were also created by Otto Binder, copying his own Marvel family playbook. At one point, Fawcett was publishing Captain Marvel Adventures, Captain Marvel Jr., Captain Marvel Family, Wiz Comics, which is the flagship Captain Marvel title, and WoW Comics simultaneously, which leads us to the highly regrettable and much maligned Steamboat Bill, or as he's more commonly referred to, Steamboat. Steamboat was a supporting character in many of Marvel's early Fawcett-era comics. He's commonly referred to as the, in air quotes, valet of Captain Marvel, and his teen alter ego, Billy Batson. He's also commonly referred to by characters in the stories as The Boy, which, you know, just isn't okay. Steamboat's depiction is objectively offensive, with a stylized face reminiscent of Sambo caricatures and a buffoonish nature. Steamboat is obviously intended to be the brunt of the jokes within the books. However, Beck claimed Steamboat was created as an attempt to appeal to African-American readers, but, like, did we really buy this? I mean, if it was, you failed. And also, that's bullshit. Because, <laughs> I mean, the, like, it's it's offensive enough. It's bad enough on its own. Because it's, it's just a black, it's a minstrel cartoon. It's just plain and simple. But compared slash contrasted with the other characters, it's like, okay, these like really like kind of realistic looking human beings, like this style that's like very kind of sort of realistic looking. And then this character next to them, which is this absurd, overly stylized caricature. It's just like, there's no way you were, you were quote unquote trying to appeal to. I mean, there's also the, the, there's also the possibility that he was just so ignorant at that time no i mean i yeah i don't i don't doubt that that could be the case that he he was but it was just so cosmically uh, uh he missed the mark by quite a quite a quite a great deal um so i've included in the script a couple images um uh, from various various captain marvel comics it's bad uh, it's bad yeah, here for Captain Marvel number 23 from April. Jesus um, Christ. Of whatever the fuck, 1941 to somewhere in there. Um, there's a It's a war propaganda cover where Captain Marvel and Steamboat are standing on a beach. And there's a little sign that says Germany with an arrow pointing away from them. And Captain Marvel is holding a giant, like, body-sized bullet shell. And uh, 
Steamboat is smacking the end of the bullet with a sledgehammer, thus causing it to fire and the bullet to rip away from them. And Captain Marvel is yelling, boy, Steamboat! And Steamboat's lips are literally half the size of his face. I mean, look at that bottom picture where he's like Captain Marvel's kind of like standing there with his arm on his shoulder. They He's just like taken out his first bad guy or whatever this this image is depicting and like it's half of his head yeah it's half of his head and steamboat is wearing a makeshift homemade captain marvel costume that is obviously supposed to be a joke of like look at this idiot he can't make a costume correctly because it's like the texture of steamboat's costume is supposed to be reminiscent of like uh, a, like a shaggy towel so it's like got little kind of rendered fuzz all over it um it's ugh, it's just ugh. and he's wearing like i don't know the i don't know what the context of this these panels are but he's like tied up and he's wearing like a like 1950s um stereotypical like pimp suit yeah it's not ideal it's real bad and they also give him a very specific speech pattern which is just racist as shit um, where, you know, Billy Batson, who's supposed to be around the same age as Steamboat, uh, speaks in a completely clear diction and, uh, Steamboat's verbal, uh, acuity is obviously very diminished and it's all hyphenated, contracted, not words that are spelled out phonetically. Like instead of business, it's B-I-Z-N-E-S, business. And like, instead of that, it's dat, D-A-T. Like, it's just... I mean, I I hesitate to say this because it feels disgusting to say. But in this panel below this, on the next page, whenever he's like punching a guy, like, they've straight up drawn him to look like a monkey. I mean, his arms are bending in ways that humans don't normally... Like, straight up. Like, they've just drawn like a a chimpanzee head. Yeah, he, he looks distinctly simian. Is very racist very racist oof he's so off-putting and i think you know and i i I just can't overstate the fact that like i just want to make two points one that captain marvel almost overnight eclipsed superman like superman was like yesterday's news and captain marvel was the comic in the whole industry so much so that they made six derivative titles to try and supply the demand for captain marvel stories And the key factor in the success, other than Bill Parker's genius idea of having a kid be an adult, is C.C. Beck. This is the conversation we've had repeatedly of the separation of the art and the artist. And obviously, we're going to have this at length later in the issue or uh, later in the episode. But the reason Captain Marvel is such a success is because C.C. Beck was brilliant. He was so good and he was so smart and made so many concise, deliberate decisions in terms of illustration and representing reality in a very concise, boiled down, stripped, streamlined measure that that it almost for me, it makes this even worse because everything he does is so considered and so thought out that for this character to be anything less than pure bigotry is so hard for me to buy. You know, it, it, it's one thing if, you know, there there are people who have made poor decisions in their in their lives and there are comics creators who've drawn people from other walks of life insensitively and they've apologized and they've said, you know what, I didn't think that through. You're right. I fucked up. And they've moved on. And everyone's been like, cool, man, you're learning and you're growing. 
But in 1940-whatever, C.C. Beck made a deliberate choice to represent things this way. Does he grow out of it? I don't know. We'll have to see. But it's really, really disheartening that somebody that brilliant would choose to embrace such a repugnant, virulent bigotry. It's pretty bad. I, you know, obviously, as many of us do, there are tons of things that we enjoy in our lives and we, you know, continue to enjoy where, you know, you kind of have to you kind of have to put on that those glasses where it's like, I like this. I'm aware of this aspect of it that is pretty bad. And I'm going to sort of consume this, read this, watch this, whatever, with, you know, the the sort of acknowledgement that like this aspect of it is outdated or unacceptable or whatever. And, you know, part of my consumption or enjoyment of this thing is also acknowledging its flaws and saying like, you know, we, we talked about this a lot on the on the James Bond episode. Um, and there's tons of stuff like that that I, you know, things from childhood that, you know, as you get older, you're just like, eesh. Um, and then, you know, you kind of choose whether you want to continue to enjoy it. And if you do, then you ideally you sort of have that you, you go through that process of acknowledgement. But uh, this is so egregious that I can't imagine being able to read these, these these specific little snapshots that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, we will talk about that more as, as things go on. But yes, <clears throat> it's very intense. In 1945, the displeasure over Steamboat's presence in the books rose to a fever pitch. A group of integrated students approached Fawcett's editorial department and arranged to meet and discuss their concerns. Ultimately, Fawcett listened. And they stopped using Steamboat as a character. Steamboat is bad, but you know what's equally as bad? Billy Batson donning blackface to get on a ship of refugees in Wiz Comics number twelve from nineteen forty one. Uh, you want to read? You want to read these balloons? Not really. <laughs> so basically, basically, there's it's Billy Batson. It's two panels from the issue, and and Billy Batson is walking onto a ship wearing his iconic yellow and. Uh, yellow and red sweater and he's smearing shoe polish on his face and his first balloon says and it looks it looks exactly like that meme where it's like a person several like four panels of somebody slowly putting on clown makeup as they're like saying something clownish it, it looks exactly like that if mr smith asks me who i am i'm going to tell him i'm rastus washington brown from alabama no it's it says alabam oh alabam my bad and that's the first panel. And then the second panel is him uh, with a caption that says, later, Billy speaks to Edward Smith. And he, the Billy Batson is in now, it now is now in full blackface. It's awful. And he's saying, is your show we is going be all right, mister? Boss man, I is going to see my mama in Alabama show enough. Ugh. Why, certainly, Rastus. You're just as safe as if you were in bed in your little cabin. Oh, God, Jesus. <laughs> this is in, the this, in the cotton. This is bad. Ugh. It's real bad. It's really bad. So, yeah, pardon us speaking, reading those racist balloons, but I feel like it, I feel like you have to know the severity of that in order to fully process it. It's so. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of, I've kind of alluded to this a little bit before, but I don't think I've we've ever like officially said this. Um, so I guess it's a little bit of a spoiler, 
Um, but I was, uh, we, we've, we've been sort of, we've been, um, compelled and motivated to do a deep cuts episode about the history of blackface because, and it's specifically because I don't, and we'll, we're going to talk about this way more in depth in the episode, but I don't think that a lot of people fully understand like the severity of the historical significance of blackface and like number one, exactly what it really means. And number two, like how insidious it was. I think I think a lot of people surprisingly and this is part of why I'm motivated to do this episode. Surprisingly, I think a lot of people do not even know what blackface is. I have talked to many people that just genuinely didn't have any idea what it was. And I think that a lot of people, even if they know what it is and even if they think it's bad, they just think of like, oh, it's this thing that used to happen and it's bad. There's there is nothing that can compare to seeing it and grappling with the the ugly nature of it. So, yeah, seeing these seeing these panels is pretty difficult because it's just like it's just confronting a truly insidious, despicable thing being done casually, which is like really hard to stomach. Um, but I but I, I, I think as long as you aren't exposed to that kind of thing, at least at some point in your life, you can it just remains like a hypothetical concept in your head. Like, oh, yeah, that was bad. We don't do that anymore. It's 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 a whole other experience to actually see it and see the way that these things were done. And I think that if you, um, I think that if you, if you haven't experienced a lot of these things firsthand, if you haven't seen video footage of old minstrel shows or comics like this or whatever, I think that you will come out of the other side of that experience thinking a lot differently about these things. And and I personally think that's kind of an important experience for any person to have living, living in this country. So what more is there to say? Blackface is a thing of the time? No. It's just offensive and awful. And look at the word balloons. Bill Parker and C.C. Beck are making Billy speak in a super offensive accent. No, it's just not okay. It's not. Captain Marvel and the Monster Society of Evil, however, is something that's worth taking note of. It's the first long-form superhero story told in North America. It was serialized over two years from 1943 to 1945. It took place in Captain Marvel Adventures 22 through 46. This is notable for multiple reasons. If you've never read a comic book from the Golden Age, you might not actually be familiar with the fact that every comic is split up into eight-page chunks, and usually you get three or maybe four eight-page stories per issue with the characters having adventures. They're complete from beginning, middle, to end. Eight pages. That's it. They don't really connect, and they don't really reference anything that's happened previously and they definitely don't spill over in between issues. Captain Marvel was the first comic that literally invented how the majority of superhero comics would be serialized over the next 70 years. Otto Binder and C.C. Beck basically built the template of every superhero comic you've ever loved over the course of those 25 issues. It's a landmark achievement, and it pushed the boundaries of what the medium of comics is capable of. And you guessed it, it's also horribly racist. And I feel like I just want to drill down and speak casually about that just a little bit before we get into the horrible racism of racism of Monster Society of Evil. Um, I, I just don't think it's... Like, I don't think uh, many modern readers have any conception of how crazy it is that they serialize this story over 20 issues because 
serialized narratives like this didn't even really exist in the 40s. Like, yes, you had serials, but radio shows were all one and done self-contained. TV shows were all one and done self-contained. Like this approach to storytelling, especially in a in a medium where you're literally not expecting someone to ever come back. It's just they buy it off the newsstand, they read it, and then they probably will never see it again. For them to make a story work and stay the course of telling this epic over 20 fucking issues is just it's a it's a massive achievement like it's it's an it, it's a notably um choochie woochie was the first ever comic character to say the words i remember hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's it's just so it's so crazy to me that they actually did this and they got away with it. And it makes you wonder. Did they, I mean, this is not giving anything a pass, but it, it, I wonder if embracing the us versus them mentality and the, the rampant anti-Japanese yellow panic racism, I wonder if that contributed to the sales of the book and allowed it to go that long. I don't know. I, I, uh, probably, probably, uh, yeah, probably. That's not a justification. I'm not, I'm not saying, thank God they did this racist stuff. It's, I mean, yeah, but it's just, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I wish they had thought of a different way to, uh, create that frenzy, but, uh, you know, it's the, the, the integration of new art forms by sort of leading, leading them into people's hearts and minds as kind of a Trojan horse with some other element that, they're more interested in or is kind of more in the zeitgeist. I think that's, that's just a very, that's a very interesting thing. I, I, I think sometimes it's strategic. Sometimes it's a total accident. Um, but I think that most things are, are introduced in that way. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk about some of these images from, uh, from the series. So the, the, the overarching story is Mr. Mind, who is Captain Marvel's arch enemy, which if you didn't know, Mr. Mind is, it's a little worm because comics fucking rule and, of course, Captain Marvel is going to fight a tiny green super intelligent worm. Fucking owns. Um, so it's it, it, the the story is Mister Mind attempting to defeat Captain Marvel over the course of these twenty issues by building this thing called the Monster Society of Evil, where he's going to get all these monsters together and they're going to you know whatever take on Captain Marvel. And uh, here we're looking at the cover of Captain Marvel number twenty nine. Um, and it is Captain Marvel and a, a incredibly racist uh, Asian general character who is literally all yellow. Like he's he's like he's this he's colored the same yellow as Captain Marvel's lightning bolt and the logo. It's the most aggressive version of yellow face I've ever seen. Yeah, he he looks like a goddamn alien because they've just like cranked up that yellow so high and. Um, this general and Captain Marvel are both looking at a bowl of rice and Mr. Mind is popping out of the rice and he's saying, well, well, imagine meeting you, Captain Marvel. <laughs> Which is so surreal. And it's like, what the fuck that what the fuck does that even mean? 
<laughs> like, it's so strange. Um, and then some other excerpts here are uh, Mr. Mind talking to um, Asian scientists who all have um, like vampire fang teeth and glasses and horribly mangled uh, anatomies that are reminiscent of racial caricatures from that time period. Yeah, what's the, what's the excuse for this one, CC? Was this made to appeal to the fucking Asian audience? Yeah, no shit, right? And then, like, you know, the the, the thing that's so... God, and then this cover for uh, num- Captain Marvel Adventures number 14 sees, uh, like, a giant figure of Captain Marvel uh, kind of rearing over a mountain ridge and a bunch of Japanese troops fleeing from him. And the title is uh, Captain Marvel Swats the Japs. Yeah, I mean, this really is this really is just a, a like seeing these. It, it, it's very similar to I mean, I, I, I guess this is no surprise. This isn't like some revelation or whatever, but it just it, it really feels like the way that like sensationalized news and misinformation gets spread like nowadays where it's all just it's all just these media companies who are just trying to get clicks so they just create these pieces of content that are like th- that are like strategically created to tap into people's emotional um, emotional centers and trigger them in these ways that causes this frenzy of like oh, I gotta have this or I gotta click on this or whatever. And it just feels like the same exact thing. It's just it's just like you know these people might not even give a fuck about comics, but they'll buy this just based on the the you know, the, the jingoism and the, and the extreme nationalism alone. I hate to be this guy, but look at that fucking hand. That's such a good drawing of a hand, like Captain Marvel's right hand. That's like reaching out over the mountain line, like about to pick up a bunch of these, you know, diminutive Japanese troops is like so well rendered. And those fingers, look at those fingernails. They're so funny and cute. I hate that. I love this so much. He's so good. And I, I also love the way that he draws, like, I know I said it before, but Captain Marvel's, like, perma squint, I just find so charming. He's just kind of, even when he's pissed off and raising his fist to trample the enemy, he's still real happy. And, like, even just the, the, the fact that it's all right lit and he's doing drop shadows on in the appropriate way that there would be shadows if there was a light source to the to the right or the left of Captain Marvel, like, that's something that you don't see a lot in comics from this era because most people didn't have artistic training to know the way that light sources interact with figures and especially since everything was produced so quickly they just like everything looks like a soap opera where it's just like the lights are above them and their their shadows are below them and okay moving on there's no sense of dynamicism to the light or chiaroscuro or any of that stuff and it just it's so maddening to me how much thought there is in some of this and how much and and not to give us a pass but i do understand this more than i understand the virulent racism from before um i think it's incredibly easy to get swept up in jingoistic us versus them mentality with people outside of your own native culture and and especially when you're at war and especially when you know we viewed ourselves during world war ii as the saviors of the world it's 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 easy to understand how someone would embrace xenophobia and racism um, under those circumstances. It's still unfortunate. It still sucks. I don't know. Yeah, but the 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 um, I mean, just blackface and minstrel shows in general, but you know, especially or you know, specifically 
the comics or Steamboat Bill as a character. It's just like it's it's unmotivated. It's just like the whole concept of it, concept of it is just like fuck these people for no reason. Surprising to no one listening to this episode. Otto Binder and C.C. Beck played into the racism and anti-Japanese sentiment that was rising due to the tensions surrounding the Second World War. The issues often present dehumanized characters, and characters that are literally bucktooth and colored bright yellow. You'd think when a group of people show up at your office and are like, hey, you're kind of being a dick, maybe be less of a dick about race stuff, that the creators would have, you know, tried to be less dickish. However that just didn't happen. In fact, the book has been so mired in the way that it handles race that has never actually been fully reprinted, which actually, I, now that I'm reading that, I don't think that's true. It was reprinted once in like a, it was reprinted once in like a $150 deluxe oversized hardcover that DC did. Um, but let's just say it's never widely been reprinted. Like you can't just go on Amazon and be like, hey, Monster Society of Evil, I'm going to get this because I'm curious to learn about the history of the medium and examine the xenophobia of one of these artists that I thought I liked. Uh, You will have to drop a couple hundred bucks to be able to do that. Um, However, a lot of it has expired and is now in a public domain, so you can find a lot of them online. Um, You know, there are a lot of kind of public domain uh, sites that upload old Golden Age comics, and a bunch of these are on there. So if if you are so inclined, you can find it that way. So you mean if I just printed these out and replaced CeCe's Beck's name with your name and released it, I could get in no legal trouble for that? That's not how public domain works, but um, sure. The book is literally a foundational element of superhero fiction, but its racism has kept it in the shadows and out of the public eye. And here's where we get to the part in the story where it all comes crashing down. Surprisingly, not because of the racism. Because the books were too successful. People in the 40s, man, they loved racism. DC didn't like being bested by Fawcett, so they sued them for copyright infringement. And after a protracted legal battle, which ended in a settlement of Fawcett agreeing not to publish Captain Marvel any longer, Fawcett went bankrupt. Eventually, DC bought all of Fawcett's assets and also chose not to publish Captain Marvel comics. Why would they? They've got Superman. Can't put all your eggs in the racism basket. Got to have a couple other baskets. <laughs> you got to have you got to have uh, like Easter egg uh, baskets just filled with varying degrees of racism. Mm-hmm. Diversify your racism. Beck couldn't find more comics work at the time. Ended up working as a commercial illustrator for an engraver and a greeting card company. Obviously, like many creators of the day, he didn't see any financial windfall from any of the adaptations or spinoffs that his book had made. He worked for a few other illustration companies that liked his clean, simple style and slowly began fading into obscurity. Act 2, Captain Marvel's Return. Two and a half decades later, DC Comics decided to revive Captain Marvel to coincide with the Captain Marvel TV show called Shazam. Just a, a side note here. I, th- I think it did happen primarily because of the show, but another reason that it happened is that in the 70s, when Jack Kirby left Marvel to come over to DC, um, part of his negotiations is that he was going to write and draw 
four books, uh, Jimmy Olsen, Forever People, New Gods, and Mr. Miracle. And those are the books that he ended up doing. But he also, part of the negotiations is that he, it was intended, well, the, the way they got him to come over and do those four books is by guaranteeing him that he could be his own editor. And part of those negotiations was that he was also discussing bringing on books that he would edit and write, but not draw. And one of them that he pitched purportedly, according to Mark Evanier, Jack Kirby's old assistant, is he pitched the idea of bringing back Captain Marvel as basically just, it was his, his editorial remit was, let's just do it like the old book, but minus the racism. We'll get C.C. Beck to come back and draw it. I'll write it. I'll edit it. And we'll just pick it up like it never left. We'll bring back Captain Marvel, get C.C. Beck back. He'll draw it. We'll all have fun. It'll all be great. We'll we'll grab CeCe's hand. We'll slap him and we'll say, no, no, you don't do that. No racism. You stop that. We shove his nose in just a big pile of pictures of Steamboat Bill. And we say, look at what you did. Look at what you did. We make the book, sells a million copies. We're all happy. So <laughs> I kind of love that idea. Um, but basically what happened was they they were negotiating with the Fawcett, you know, defunct Fawcett, whatever, to, to have these rights to make more Captain Marvel comics. And they ended up being allowed to do it. and it was, Everything was going to be great. And then it kind of became a little bit higher profile of a project when the TV show started to ramp up. And they were like, look, Jack Loki can't write. We don't want him to write this thing for CC Beck to draw. So they, they enlisted Danny O'Neill to write the, to write that book and kind of gave Jack the boot and didn't let him even edit it and didn't really give him any money for it or anything. He, he just kind of like made it happen. And then they were like, thanks Jack. Bye. Like they always do. Can I at least shove his face in the pile of steamboat bill drawings? That's really what I was kind of. That's, that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. Why was the new captain Marvel reboot book and the show titled Shazam? You ask? Well, in the intervening two decades, the copyright to the title of the book, captain Marvel had lapsed. And Marvel Comics had snapped it up, creating a new character called Captain Marvel. The DC character's name was still Captain Marvel, but they just couldn't legally call a book Captain Marvel. Marvel's Captain Marvel, parentheses, not the racism one. <laughs> and the, and the, the book at this time, when it, when it gets rebooted, I think it's called uh, Shazam, the magic, magic word Shazam or Shazam the Magic Word or something something like that. I don't remember the exact title now, but it's basically, it's like a really weird long title where they, they have like Shazam in big letters and then Captain Marvel's on the cover being like, hey, what's up, guys? You remember me, I'm Captain Marvel, but also I say Shazam. Remember I say Shazam? Um, which is kind of hilarious to me. Remember how I say that? Only remember that part. Don't remember the, anything else. Just my, my dimple and saying Shazam. In a surprising twist, DC approached Beck to illustrate the new title which he accepted. Let's just stop here for a minute and drill down. Joe Schuster, the man who co-created Superman, was not brought back to do more Superman work after leaving the company. Bob Kane, who erroneously received credit for creating Batman, never returned for a meaningful reboot of Batman. These companies were cutthroat and had no sense of goodwill for the creators that made these enduring iconic heroes. But they had such a deep respect for racism. They just loved the racism. That's what that's what caused them to bring it back. 
You're a really great artist, one of the best I've seen, but you know what really impresses me? The racism. For them to ask Beck to return is almost unprecedented, and just goes to show you the skill and talent the man possessed. DC wanted his blessing on the reboot, and they knew that there's only one real Captain Marvel artist, CC fucking Beck. Besides, smizing is hard. Have you ever tried doing it, let alone drawing someone doing it? Shit's not easy. When asked about his return, Beck said, They talked me into ill- what, is, what does his voice sound like? Is it, is it kind of like a, is it like a soft-spoken voice or is it like a gruff? I imagine him being probably a little bit more gruff sounding because he's kind of a short, like kindly looking dude, but he's filled with hatred. So I imagine that comes through in his voice. They talked me into illustrating the first few issues of the revived Captain Marvel comic. But I gave up when I realized that the stories were structureless, meaningless, totally worthless, and there wasn't a single racist thing in them. Yeah, that last part obviously wasn't his quote, but I'm sure that he was disappointed by the lack of racism in Danny O'Neill's scripts. So here's where we reach the end of the road. The issue at stake is a complex and intricate one. How do we separate the art from the artist? How do we evaluate a master craftsman's work while at the same time not giving way to his repugnant and virulent racism? One way to think about this is, over his life, did C.C. Beck mature? and grow from his past sins? Did he attempt to make amends for his work that was obviously ignorant and harmful? In a phone interview with Tom Hinges in the late 1980s, Beck said the following, Steamboat was created to capture the affection of inward, but not that inward, the other inward, that I still don't want to say, readers. Unfortunately, he offended them instead and was unceremoniously killed off after a delegation of blacks visited the editor's office protesting because he was a servant because he had huge lips and kinky hair and because he spoke in a dialect. He was always a cartoon character, not intended to be realistic at all, but he was taken seriously by some, sadly enough. Remember, this is in the this is in the 1980s that uh, C.C. Beck is dropping in the N-word that doesn't end with R, it ends with an O. Yes, in case that was unclear, he didn't, he didn't drop the hard R. He dropped the regrettable O. The, uh, the regrettable O. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. It's the 1980s. Come on, guy. You can't be calling people that word. Fucking Christ. Everybody's working for the weekend. Ah, I love this song. Also, I say the N-word. <laughs> you just went to go see Rocky Three. I love this movie. Also, I say the N-word. That really doesn't sound like someone who's done even the slightest amount of soul-searching. Another thing to keep in mind when having this conversation is, did the artist in question actively keep perpetuating the objectionable behavior throughout their career? Well, unfortunately, throughout the 70s, Beck made a living selling recreations of commissions based off his previous work, meaning he would redraw or paint iconic images from Captain Marvel's past. Get a load of this drawing. You wanna, you wanna describe this drawing? Mr. Uh, Mr. Price. It's a family portrait of the uh, aforementioned Captain Marvel family. You've got the uh, got the whole gang here. I don't see that ta- tiger. Talkie Tony Tiger. No, he's not there. He died. He he. Tigers have short shorter lifespans than humans. Um, he was he was he was malnourished in a zoo in a poorly funded zoo and died of starvation. Um, but other than that, we got the whole gang here. The regrettable inclusion of Steamboat. In full minstrel regalia. Yeah, he's wearing a white suit and his lips are the bottom half of his face. And uh, this drawing was made in 1974. Full on 1974. 
However, when doing research for this, I, I also found another image, which is it's the exact same family portrait, but the steamboat drawing has been redone to, it's been remastered basically to uh, not be offensive. And he just looks like a bigger, longer and less racist. <laughs> yeah, basically the, the steamboat character in this, he might as well not even be steamboat because he doesn't. Like, looking at that character, I don't know that I would have known that he's Steamboat because he's not wearing uh, the horribly racist garb that they normally clothe him in. He's wearing a suit. And also, uh, he's he looks like an African-American man, like he should have from the very beginning. He looks like a human being. Yeah, he looks like, like how anyone would want to be depicted in a comic. He blends in with the rest of the characters as opposed to sticking out like a sore thumb. So the question is... It, you know, which one of these drawings is the original because they're both just kind of floating around on the internet. You know, it, it's hard to tell. The thesis question is, did C.C. Beck draw the less racist updated version where he changed Steamboat to be less racist and then somebody else altered it to reinsert the minstrel version to like make a political statement, make a political or- statement or whatever. Or did he draw the racist version and then somebody came in and digitally altered it to fix the racism? Yes. Um, and you know, just for, for background information, this, uh, this family portrait, that this recreation that he did in the 70s is a takeoff of a drawing that he had done in the 40s, um, which was based off of a... Uh, they, they did a, they did a competition in 1944 where they had uh, the cover to Wiz Comics Captain Marvel is like looking at a giant printout photo of the family portrait and on the inside back cover of the issue there's a big checklist of like can you name all these characters mail in the proof of you know you cut this out of the comic mail it in and we'll give you a prize and that this family portrait is the same family portrait that CC Beck did a recreation of in the 40s. Um, and Steamboat is there in the original 1944 drawing with full-on blackface. Um, uh, so after doing some hunting on the interwebs uh, and with help of people like uh, Jim Thompson from the Comic Book Historian's Facebook group, which is a good group, you should join it if you're interested in things of comics history, uh, I am fairly confident in saying... Drum roll. Unfortunately, the racist one is a recreation that Beck, Beck did, in fact, create. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really depressing. Um, and I, I, it just, it just, it, it speaks so much volume. It speaks volumes of, of his character that in 1974, he was still drawing Steamboat in blackface. He was just like, nah, fuck you. This is what I'm doing. This is my racist boat and I'm going down in it. Who, my racist steamboat? Who changed my drawing? This character looks like a regular person. The fuck? C.C. Beck is a figure that has contributed massive amounts to the history of the comics medium. He was a gigantic talent and an iconic figure in his heyday. However, his personal beliefs or cultural blind spots cast a long shadow over his legacy and that of Captain Marvel's. His contemporaries like Will Eisner, Hergé, and many others struggled with not giving in to the aberrant racism of their times. However, most of them who did create objectionable work, 
apologized later in life and attempted to rectify the situation. Will Eisner created Fagin the Jew as an answer to this conversation. Hergé spent a long time producing work that was a direct reflection of his early missteps with books like Tintin in Tibet and The Blue Lotus. To make things even more complex, as previously stated, The Monster Society of Evil has never been widely made available in official reprints. Should it be reprinted today? Should it remain inaccessible forever? I don't know. There's an argument to be made that it's a crucial piece of art history. And with a proper forward explaining the large swaths of content that are morally repugnant, it should be made available today. There's another argument that it's needlessly bigoted and that those aspects of the work completely eclipse any artistic value that the work previously held. I don't know how I feel, both about Monster Society of Evil and Beck as a creator. His place in comics history seems to be dwindling every year, perhaps justifiably so. However, I would point out that Breakfast at Tiffany's is heralded as a classic and a high point of Audrey Hepburn's career, and every freshman film stool uh, and every freshman film school student watches Birth of a Nation. I I struggle with this a lot, which is probably why it's a recurring theme on our show. I spend a lot of time thinking about this, and I'm also obsessed by people who are deeply flawed and create work through those flaws. And the ugliness of those works, a lot of times I find deeply compelling. Um, and I, as I've espoused previously in this episode, I, I think that C.C. Beck is arguably one of the best illustrators from that time, if maybe not ever in the history of the medium. But I, I don't know how to square the circle of why he is thrown out and not heralded as a genius, but people who have done equivalent things are heralded as, as luminaries. Um, it's, it's, and I, and I, I'm not justifying for somebody or, or lobbying for somebody to be canceled or for CC Beck to be brought back into the canon in some way that he's not. I'm just expect to be greenlit. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not lobbying either way. I think, I think, you know, I think ultimately, well, I'll wait to say, what do you, I mean, I, I know that you're not as big of a comics person as I am, but I mean, what is your, from a little bit more of an outside perspective, what is your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, I think the personal, the personal um, sentimentality and the nostalgia definitely have a large factor in it because, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier for me to say like not having any kind of personal history or previous affinity with, with Captain Marvel. Um, same thing with the, the James Bond movies, like watching the James Bond movies in preparation to talk about them without any of that nostalgia or like the experience of having grown up watching them and loving them. It was, you know, it was very, it was much easier for me to be like, ugh, like, I don't want to watch this. This is like, this is kind of gross. Um, but there's, but there's plenty of other things that I love that have the same shit, but it's just, you know, you can like, I like kind of, as I was kind of trying to articulate before, um, whenever you, when you, are, when you love something and you are a self-reflective, conscientious person that is open-minded and, um, wants to grow and progress and not just confirm your biases and refuse to, uh, incorporate new information that challenges your worldview. Whenever you, whenever you do continue to enjoy those things, you, 
you also reckon with the with the flaws and you acknowledge them and in some ways um you know continuing to consume those things read them watch read watch whatever it is um you're you're actually you're actually kind of like anthropo anthropologically digging through your own um your own your your own psychological uh, growth and history and, you know, contrasting and comparing your mindset now with how it was, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is. Um, and you can, you can do a lot of those mental, you can do a lot of mental gymnastics to justify those things or, um, to get yourself into a place where you can enjoy them with all of these, you know, with all these flags put up and certain points of light being blocked off and reflected off of walls and things like that. Um, and ultimately I, I feel the same way as you where I, just, I don't know what the right thing is for that. I, I, I don't, I don't know what the right thing is to do. I, I do know that I do that with tons of things. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't personally, I don't personally see the harm in that. If you are sort of enjoying something, in the privacy of your own home and you are making those mental acknowledgements and you aren't just, you know, hand waving off the problematic elements of them. Like, I think, I think the reason why those things are problematic is because of the way that they, the way that they, um, inform and influence culture and society. So if you're not out there openly, you know, contributing to the continuation of this thing's cultural significance, significance, and if you're also personally aware of the issues, um, I don't see those, I don't see those problems as being necessarily relevant. Now, in terms of your question about whether this person should be heralded as a genius or held up to, you know, some particular regard, that's an even, that's an even more morally gray, um, question that I, that I couldn't even begin to answer. And in some ways, it's kind of a, a false premise because unfortunately there almost isn't such a thing as like a rediscovered cartoonist or a re-examined work like a you know there there are so many examples of films or novels or video games or these these things from other media that were from another time period or weren't successful in their own day that then 20 30 40 50 years later become popular you know like there is no Vincent Van Gogh of comics there is no you know, a uh, Miami connection of comics because the reader base is so insular and it's such a small body of people in North America reading it that it never reaches escape velocity into the, the broader culture. Typically speaking, you know, most comics, most, most comic book readers are people who fucking read comics. There, there, there isn't a casual reader of comics really. Um, you know, somebody who's read Dark Knight Returns and Mouse that's awesome, but you're not a comic book reader. Like, you're just not. Whereas film and TV, it's so ubiquitous in our culture and it's so easily accessible and you, it's easy to get into. And there's, it's a, it's an art form that works for you. You don't have to work at all to make it happen. So you, 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 you have these examples of cult films bubbling up through society and being, you know, kind of re-released in a Criterion edition and a bunch of new people finding it or, you know, what have you. So in some ways, me being like, should we, should we all re-examine C.C. Beck is like, who's we? Me and like three people on the internet? Like, I guess, what does that mean? Who cares? Like, it's not, it's just, it's not the same conversation as, you know, in, in 
40 years when it comes out all the terrible things that Tom Cruise has done and everyone's like, oh God, Scientology was terrible. And then his movies get removed from the canon. And then another 80 years go by and people are like, ah, that Xenu stuff, who cares? Let's, let's watch Ghost Protocols again. That movie was great. You know, like that just won't happen with comics. Yeah. Which is, I guess, a whole other conversation. Yeah. I guess on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com, where you can find comics like Action Hospital and Fuck Off Squad, my coming-of-age skater kid romance comic. Uh, Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me saying a magic word granted upon me by a mystical wizard, at which point I transform into a square-jawed, buff, chiseled man, as I always envision myself. And you can always find me at dapricewrites.com, where you can buy my book with zero racism in it, apparently. I had to do- I double-check before this. I quickly skimmed through it. Zero racism. Deadbolt AI Private Eye. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. And the Dead Boy Detectives.